close look at Wilder. He won't want to see him take too much. Chance from the Fury in the hands of you, Big Dosser, that he's still looking for that right hand, Wilder. And that's hard. You, know, you see Wilder there putting everything into those shots and missing. And that brings your energy also. Fury, wow, what a legend. Wills, we obviously watched that fight in the early hours in the Clapham Grand. What can you remember? Yeah, it was a good night, wasn't it? I think we both, both our nights reconvened at about four o'clock. We're both various nights out with our mates, and um, obviously we wanted to stay up for what a lot of people were saying was going to be the, the fight of the decade, particularly in the heavyweight division. Um, and it did not disappoint, did it? We obviously went to the Clapham Grand. Surprisingly, there was oh, about, about five, six hundred people there. Some, obviously, some quite rowdy rowdy people at five o'clock in the morning so it was a it was a great atmosphere and um, we were not we were not let down at all because you know i stayed up a couple of months earlier to watch the the, the mcgregor against the cowboy ufc fight and that was very very uh, depressing having only lasted a couple of seconds but we were not disappointed obviously with fury completely outboxing Deontay wilder and eventually here's a corner chucking in the towel in the seventh round so i think you know one of the great heavyweight performances and I'm um, looking forward to the future of the heavyweight division. And it's now set up the trilogy. Who, who's your money on? Yeah, obviously, obviously there was rumours of potentially trying to get a fight between Fury and Joshua, but it seems that Wada has activated the trilogy um, clause in the contract and I just can't see any other result than um, Fury beating him again. Whether it's knockout or not, I'm not sure, but um, I just think there's too much of a difference in the quality of the fighters. And obviously Wilder will have a different tactics, and Wilder has to uh, activate this clause because otherwise there's a, it's hard for him to ever get back to that high world championship level, but I just can't see any other result uh, rather than a Fury victory. And will, will we get the Battle of Britain? The two heavyweights slogging it out, will we get it? Oh, I mean, well, there's, there's a couple of things beforehand. You've got the uh, trilogy between these two, we've got Joshua uh, scheduled to fight Pulev, who is not an easy op um, opposition by any means. And then there's the likes of Dillian White wanting to get involved because he's obviously the mandatory. So fingers crossed, but I don't think we should expect the fight to happen anytime soon after sport is um, released. But fingers crossed, because I think imagine Tyson Fury against Anthony Joshua, Wembley Stadium. I mean, you think how big the Joshua against Klitschko fight was at Wembley. This would be that times 100. This week on the podcast, we have Nicole David, the greatest women's squash player of all time, who throughout her career has won a total of eight squash world championships. Welcome, Nicole. Um, it's great to have you. Thank you so much for doing this. We like to start um, every interview that we do with, you know, quite a topical question. Um, how, how are you keeping yourself fit during the time, the quarantine for Corona? You just find ways to be, be fit in. Um, as a former athlete as well, you, you always find means to make it work in whatever space you have. And uh, I'm fortunate that I have a space also in the house and on, at the balcony to just do some exercises that I used to have, some programs that... I used to have um, when I was training and also some apps that you can just 
have a go at it with like a Nike training app. So I try to fit in like four, four or five times a week um, exercise to just keep me active and so that my mind doesn't wander off and to keep me sane as well. <laughs> you were saying earlier there's a car park in which you, you hit the yes. ball. <laughs> I saw you also released on Facebook a little how to keep fit video for your Facebook fans uh, a couple of, a couple of weeks ago to make sure everyone else is staying active as well during this time. Yeah, it was just um, a friend of mine said like, you know, we love to see what you're doing with some exercises and we'll, we'll love to follow. And I was thinking, do you really want to see me train? And they go like, yeah, of course. And so I thought I'd give it a try and it had a lot of good response uh, back home and all around the world. And I thought it, it gave them a bit more of a bit of a positive um, insight uh, to give them a chance to also work out as well. So that was great. Uh, I, yeah. I could actually do something <laughs> just by doing stuff naturally anyway. So why not share yeah. it? Yeah, it was, it was great to say that. Um, so let's move into your, your actual squash career. Can we start right back from when you first started? Because um, I'm not sure what squash was like in Malaysia when you first started, but I just want to love to get an insight on how you kind of got into squash as a career. Was it just like a hobby initially? And um, so how did you train in a country where it wasn't known for its squash initially? Yeah, um, squash uh, was uh, not really big in Malaysia, uh, especially in Penang, where I came, I come from. Uh, and when I was growing up, um, the there was the first public squash center that was built by my by my dad's friend, and it was for the public. So his friend actually asked uh, him to bring my sisters, uh, Leanne and Cheryl, uh, my two older sisters, and myself to try it out. But at the time, I was five years old and I was too young. So I just joined them at the squash court and I watched them play. And it was so much fun um, while I was running around uh, outside the squash court. So at the end, uh, they decided to put me on the squash court. And uh, I just fell in love with it, uh, with a racket that was cut into half because I was too small to have a normal size racket. And it, I just played it from that moment on and I just wanted to have lessons, more lessons, got better. Any yeah. other any other sports or was it just squash from the outset from the first from that from that first moment? Squash uh, mainly from the very beginning and then when I went to school, um, that was even before going to school, uh, primary school and only when I went to primary school I started playing volleyball and basketball and run athletics, swimming. But squash really took me places. I got to travel around Malaysia for squash competitions with my sisters. And even my mom had to go with us for the first time because I was only nine years old. <laughs> and uh, it, was, it was a great time to actually see how I was improving, how I could travel and meet people and then actually start winning. So I was winning tournaments at 10, 11 years old. And yeah, I just... Thought, why not? I, I just kept loving the game and wanting to get better every time. <laughs> That's fascinating. And you say your your older sisters started. How long yeah. was it after you started that you started to beat them? <laughs> A long time after because they were really good and um, they were we were we made the state team and also they played for the national team as well with with me. Um, only when I got to. 13 or so 14 when I actually pushed the national like going up the national rankings and that's when I had to I started beating my sisters and 
and then I and then I became the top in the country. So they were the top in the country at the time. So I had to. They were my benchmark. <laughs> they they kind of enjoyed that day very much. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's funny how my sisters are. They're not as competitive as me. I'm the one that is the youngest fully like wanting to beat them from from the get-go so, so they were always very very gracious in defeat for sure and do you think having those two two older sisters to look up to and to challenge yourself do you think that's kind of spurred you on as a player to you know go out there and beat the other opponents yeah definitely uh, they were something to look 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 up to and i could actually be on court with them train with them and feel what it's like to be like getting all the tough shots or what are they doing good I want to improve and I learned so much from them and they really were um, inspiring me to get better to to be just like them as well. Great and you so you, you obviously started the sport at a very young age and you joined the squash tour when I think you were only 17 years old so what was this like the kind of you said you did some traveling beforehand as well, but suddenly you were traveling at a very young age all around the world. It seems like you started winning on the squash tour very quickly as well. So this must have been a great acceleration in your career. And, and yeah, so can you explain just what that was like at such a young age? Yeah, straight after high school, uh, I, I already dreamt I wanted to be a world champion. Um, when I was 15, I won my first world junior title and I think that spurred the sparked something in me that I wanted to play this professionally and for um, and to see how I can give it a good go. So my parents um, gave me a chance to try it out. I was given funding from the National Sports Council of Malaysia to play professionally, and I and I thought I'll bargain with my parents for one year to try pro and. And if I if I don't do so well, I might go back to studying. So they said, right, we'll we'll let you go. And I went up to the top sixteen in the world for the after the first year of competing on the tour at seventeen. And I was so uh, and I thought, why not? I'll give it another year. <laughs> <laughs> was, was was the motivation not to go back to studying, or was it just the love of the game? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it was the top both the combination of the two, and uh, my parents. But we're very we're very pleased to see how I was doing and in the third year I, I just told them like I really want to take this full full time and move to Amsterdam and I moved when I was eighteen plus to train in Amsterdam full time and they said that was in my eyes they saw that I really was willing wanting to do this uh fully and commit to it so they gave their blessings. Why did you move to Amsterdam? Uh, my coach, Liz Irving, uh, she was based there and she was also a touring pro. At the time, she was already playing professionally for almost 20 years and uh, played for Australia World Champions for the team. And, uh, so she was coaching there and I went there um, in that first year, like for one month to Amsterdam to see the place, see how uh, she invited me over and I was very pleased that she was willing to take me on. Yeah. And we just clicked, yeah, and we just clicked and the, what she offered and all her experience that she, of, and knowledge of squash was really, really uh, intriguing and I was so fascinated uh, about the sport even more so because she opened a whole different perspective of squash 
took for me. And, and when I decided to move there, I really wanted to work with her full time because she's a great person. She has a big heart and she was a real, uh, technically she was very, very uh, specific and, and tactically as well. And just a true mentor to me for 16 years after that. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. And so you, you say that you started at such a young age. Um, how, how did the training to become a world champion change? from such a young age where you probably were doing more court work to, you know, later in your career when you were, you know, probably in the gym more, I guess. Yeah, when I then full, uh, full-time professional uh, in, and I moved to Amsterdam, it's where everything really was clear that I needed to do so much more. Like the, the training load, the squash uh, specific technical um, corrections and, everything was um, added on and uh, my physicality obviously was not as strong so I started doing more weights after I was 18 years old um, with the the program set by the Institute of Sports in Malaysia Uh, and also all the and basically it's like two two times a day training six days a week uh, and it's about two to four hours a day of training just repetition um, feeding like my coach is feeding me different things to correct, make sure my technique is corrected because I had to start from zero. <laughs> it, I was already like twenty, and I still had to start from scratch because to beat the top players uh, or be the top ten, in the top ten in the world, you have have to have options and variety. And I was very limited with my technique. So what um, this had to do is she had to break down everything from zero, from my movement, from my technical aspect, from the technical side, to be fully ready for what the top players were, were doing and to be prepared for what to bring forward. So it was a real learning experience that first few years in Amsterdam, for sure. Well, yeah, it definitely paid off. And you briefly touched on it there about trying to maintain in the top 10 because... You had the record for 151 consecutive months in the top 10 for the world's uh, squash rankings, which, which we, we couldn't really believe how remarkable that was. I mean, and then also winning like eight world open titles. Like you talk, touched on the technical side, but from a mental side, how did you mentally say, stay so determined and motivated during all this time to kind of, you're at the top, but you had to maintain that level throughout this long period of time? Yeah, um, I was sharing with you just more of the the first part of the process, but mentally I had to learn that from even when I was younger. When I was 12 years old, we were very fortunate to get a mental trainer to help the national Malaysian team in preparing for the Commonwealth Games in, in Malaysia in 1998. From that mental training, like with visualization, goal settings, how to prepare for game plans and and I did that since I was 12 years old. Um, and that when I actually moved into the professional tour, I had also another sport psychologist in Amsterdam that was I had to work with to also teach me how to handle that kind of pressure to be a professional player at the same time to be at uh, number one in the world and, and to sustain that uh, intensity of pressure and mental toughness and focus continuously in those oh, yeah. in those years 
and it all comes in different phases. How do you tackle different players, different opponents? And I had to always change and adjust every time because the players are always gonna keep working on new strategies, new tactics to try and beat me. So I have to always be on my game. I, I have to work with my mental trainer, sports psychologist on how to prepare fully for every moment and cover every aspect of the game. Yeah, it must have been because you are at the top for so long. It was almost like everyone you faced would you be the one to beat, so for sure. And you mentioned on the opposition you were playing. I mean, you had some great rivals over your time. I mean, I found for one example of Natalie Grinham, you played 32 times throughout your career. I and mean, she's, she's a Dutch international as well, so I'm not sure whether you come, came across her in Amsterdam when you were living then. But, like, that, that rivalry aspect must keep you um, very motivated and on, on your toes as well. Yeah, it was always like uh, a lot of rivalries in between uh, with Natalie Grinham uh, coming through and her sister as well, Rachel Grinham. Uh, they were both very strong uh, competitors at the time and they were pushing me. And then it came with the English players with Jenny Dunkov and Laura Vasaro. They were also coming strong um, as number two and three in the world. And then the Egyptians came through and so all these different rivalries were the ones that helped me got, get better and to push me to improve to refine every small detail because it's it's those fine details that makes you um, better each time and they are the ones they have to figure out what to do next and I am the one that has to be that's always being chased and they have nothing to lose so that that alone was um, I never really thought of it uh, of how long I sustained that until I retired <laughs> and then I realized how hard it was. <laughs> Look, I mean, that, that tactic of, you know, basically playing the opponent has worked out so well for you. I mean, you won, you've won eight world titles, Um, I think I think the question which will be on all our followers' mind is um, what what happened in 2007 and 2013. Yeah, I, that's a good one. Uh, in 2007 was gonna be my third my attempt to get my third world title, and I think my focus was so I was training really hard. I was probably maybe focusing too far in the like uh, in thinking of getting the the, the title that I didn't focus on the first few rounds so that was my big learning that I was just maybe taking things for granted and not focusing on the moment and that's what that's what happens when you you are too busy thinking it too far ahead so I learned I lost in the second round to a very strong uh, opponent Shelly Kitchen from New Zealand and and that loss hit me really hard that I learned to not take those first few rounds um, uh, too easily and just focus on the moment and worked hard at every tournament and after that that loss I I didn't lose a match for I think a year and a half I think <laughs> because I was so so I that was thinking, <laughs> yeah I, I learned the hard way but then again it gave me a sense of uh, uh, learnings that I only could learn from a loss and I, le I learned my learnings from losses. 
I, I wish I could have that. When I lose one time, I wish I could learn how not to lose for another year and a half. It'd be nice. <laughs> You're just used to losing, Rory. <laughs> um, so, um, so you became number one for the first time when you were just 23 years old. And um, in, that was in 2006. And so in 2007, you were awarded the Asian Sportsman of the Year. And we, we touched on it earlier, how when you started playing squash, it wasn't a massive dominant sport in Malaysia. Have you noticed an increase in participation in Malaysia, but Asia as a whole for squash? Because someone like you as a role model, it must have, there must have been an increased like, figures in terms of like playing or watching. And um, yeah, so how's, how's that grown as a sport? It has been uh, huge in, the, in terms of support from the government. Uh, to really push for squash after having good big wins and doing well and a lot of funding has come into having event tournaments within Malaysia, having a good uh, program for juniors, development program to come to come through and now we have in, my, in Penang itself, we have kids on the waiting list because they only can have 200 kids at a time to to take up the program. So from three girls, my sisters and me were the only girls in my state to actually have such a big following now and a lot of girls coming through to play the sport. In Asia, we have a lot of countries like Hong Kong and India that are a big powerhouse for squash after having the Asian Games being one of the big things to put money into the sport and they produce medals. So now, now these countries are coming full speed in, with squash. So you see so much um, positive uh, outcome coming from the last 20 years of Asia having been a small nation, a squash nation, to now actually being one of the powerhouses in, in the squash. Yeah, that's, that's, that's great to hear. And you, you just touched on the Asian Games there. And obviously, you, yeah. you must have been in plenty of conversations about the exclusion of squash as an Olympic sport. I mean, you guys have been trying for multiple years, and I think the last the last three Olympic Games you've made you've made appeals to try and get squash included, and um, even the most recent uh, Olympics, which was obviously scheduled for this year, but now postponed to next year. I mean, the break dancing, skateboarding, climbing have all been included, but there's no there's no squash yet. So, um, firstly, how much for shame but for you from a personal point of view the fact that you've had your illustrious career being world champion for so many years and it's like um and you haven't had squash involved in the olympics but moving forward how important is it for squash to be in the olympics uh, to, to develop to keep developing the sport yeah with the olympic campaign squash has really grown from the time we were wanting to be included in the games the last almost 10, 15 years. And uh, we can see how much the progress our sport has in, in terms of the media coverage, the, the live broadcasting, everything that um, we want to portray um, has, has been tremendous uh, in that process of campaigning for the Olympic Games. But now the, I think the appeal is kind of lost in some ways because we've done everything we could and we are the sport that really deserves to be there in the Olympic Games uh, for credibility. And, but then at the same time, the Olympics has its own priorities, its own criteria, and now they are looking to different sports and 
what is appealing to them is um, what they've included, like break dancing and uh, wall climbing, and they are great sports that appeals to the youth and to to young the younger generation, and also it brings in more commercial value for them. Uh, but for now, um, that's the appeal that they want to have. So for us as uh, for the squash community, we would love to be there, but now we've done everything and it's kind of lost its appeal and we decide why not focus on our sport, grow our sport and make it huge and big and as it, as it is already. Um, and, it's, and it's great to see how it's growing so well. But yeah, I think, yeah, we, we if the Olympics won us, they would have taken us in. <laughs> we should stop focusing so much on trying to fit in that box of what the Olympics won because it keeps changing. So we might as well focus on the task at hand instead to grow make up. Them, make them come to you. Get it so good. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, because obviously you set up, the squash is a massive sport anyway without the yeah. Olympics. I know you think it'll be a great um, boost in terms of the publicity just if it was an Olympic sport because if it just means a handful of people then pick up a squash racket as a result of being in the Olympics, um, it'd be great. Yeah. But um, as, as it is already, squash is still a massive sport. So Hopefully one day we'll go get there, but I don't think it's anytime soon. But uh, I do hope in future, um, the, the next generation of kids that play squash will have a chance to be on that uh podium one day <laughs> <laughs> yeah well we both understand the slight frustration because we we both played squash on a, a very amateur level um but <laughs> over the years um so yeah. i'd quite, quite like to ask you about this kind of participation because in england there's a lot of people who are very fit healthy kind of especially now looking for sports to kind of get into like yeah. how would you almost advertise squash from like a, a level from having played it all your life since you were five years old like how would you advertise it from a fitness side but also just it's just good fun to play isn't it yeah I think you you've said it um being an amateur uh playing squash by I think in every level whether you're a professional amateur or junior level squash really captivates something that not many sports have is that it gives the excitement that you are amongst you are in the same court as your opponent and you're like fighting for that space. You're fighting to gain control and, and it's so fast. It's it's um you you have to be so quick in your mind and where where to put the ball and and that that is it's actually a squat we call it the squash bug. If you start playing squash it really you get a little addicted to it because it's it really gives you that thrill of wanting to uh, and the high of working so fast and the ball is traveling so quick that you want you you naturally are working without even realizing and you come out after 20 minutes having <laughs> a, a solid workout and you always wanted to do, want to do it over and over again so I think that's how I can like um, encourage people to try give it a try and and because it's so much fun with your friend as well you can <laughs> get on call with your friend and you can have fun together but also if you want to keep practicing on your own you can do it yourself to like to get better to practice some of your skills and shots to get better as well and so so as Archie has said we we both play amateurly which I think is actually a bit unfair because I'm sure I'm sure Nicole you remember 11 years ago um you, you gave a great coaching session to the Brambletide first team squash team 
Um, but apart from, apart from that session, um, what has been your highlight in your highly successful squash career? <laughs> yeah, that was truly my highlight of, yeah. Well, it wasn't, I can tell, I can tell. You guys? <laughs> I can remember you, you were serving to me and you hit a slightly weak serve. And I don't think you were yeah. ready for the return that was coming. But. I think that was deliberately weak, Roy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, but no on, on a serious note, what, what is your highlight from your career? My highlight, I have many, but I think the highlight of my career would be to sustain that number one position for nine years. I only realized that was my ultimate highlight only after I retired and when I put it all together in my head and I had time to reflect on what has been my highlights or what has been um, the best time for me. I think it's uh, it's being at the at number one for nine years and and feeling like you always have to work harder to be there. So I think I was tr I'm truly proud of that moment. Well, it's a long time, but, <laughs> but I'm truly proud of that achievement for sure. I think you should definitely be proud of that because that is incredibly impressive. Um, and so now, so now, what is your plan as um, moving on from squash? So are, you, are you planning to keep keep in the squash world, whether it's coaching, training, or move something completely different? Because you have done it the whole of your life. So maybe switch the scene a little bit. What is your plan now? Yeah, uh, well, my plan after my uh, retirement was actually to give back. And I want to give back in three different ways, which is to give back to the community, which is the youth and kids through my foundation. So I want to encourage more kids to play squash and using squash as a tool to empower them and to fulfill their dreams. So my that's what my foundation is going to uh, do for kids, for eight, nine-year-old kids in Malaysia. And also I want to give back to the sport. I want to also... Um, help out the sport in some ways maybe to in the national team to have maybe camps or so for our local players to give them a mental ship advice or some on-court work but I, I won't do full-time but I would like to to contribute in some ways in a consulting side and also I like to do a lot of motivational talks to give back to society to talk about my story to tell them about what it uh, what has what I've done and how I can help to give them a little insight of what has helped me to be uh, who I am and and my experience to to share with um, like corporate companies to uh, other like to the UN I was involved on a panel in the UN uh, last year on the women's panel and also talk, and also speaking about women empowerment and also empowering women through in my talks as well and how they can stand for themselves and be and I'm just a testament to what uh, what Malaysian women can do so <laughs> I want to encourage more women to be who they are and be strong about it and I think I think that's what we ultimately are trying to do as well we're trying to get across the stories from professionals to say you know what any so they can hear the story and how it starts and you know it starts at any age it doesn't have to be a certain age yeah. and you know what we can hopefully spread that word and you know get it out there it's great things that you are doing right now so uh, i'm excited to to share a little bit here too and hopefully it reaches out to the people that you all want to reach out to well no nicole thank you so much it's been a pleasure having you um and you know it's been a very fascinating interview and i'm sure everyone of our followers would, would love to hear about it um so thank you very much for taking time 
No, thanks so much. Uh, so nice seeing you guys again and uh, stay safe. This is the part of the podcast where we like to discuss the S athletes and the members articles written by you yourselves. This week we had Adam Haynes, a GB bobsleigh. I personally didn't know too much about bobsleigh, so it was great to get an in-depth read into the life of a bobsleigh champion. And Archie, you in your life have had a chance to really get into the depths of bobsleigh. So is there anything you can add to the article or what were your own experiences with it? <laughs> yeah, when you get into the depths, I'm not, I mean, I'm not saying I'm a, I'm a pro bobsleigh myself, but my experience of bobsleigh is firstly through my dad, actually, um, who actually wrote an article uh, under the members articles about his experience as a bobsleigh when he was bobsleighing for the army back in the day. Um, and his career, bobsleigh career was cut short after a very nasty injury to his knee. And then also I've, Slight experience of more, not bobsleigh as such, but skeleton, which uh, for those listeners who don't know, is is the one where you're literally going down on a tree head first down the ice at uh, very, very fast speeds, I think around 80 miles an hour. And my experience with that was I was just, I think I mentioned in the previous podcast, I um, used to do a little bit of running back in the day, and they, speed is meant to be one of the uh, attributes for a skeleton athlete. And I was, it was post the Winter Olympics, and I tried to get into it, so I went to a couple of training sessions in the junior, junior GB uh, wider squad, and um, sadly got got to a couple of, through a couple of stages, but didn't make it into the final stage. But very interesting to hear Adam's point of view from actually someone who did make it on the ice, um, who's obviously been through a lot. He's a seriously talented athlete, um, so really good to get an interview from Adam. So Archie, you obviously count yourself, as you've said yourself, as a quick runner. Do you think that's a key key skill to a bobsleigh? Yeah, very good question, because one of the most important things for a bobsleigh is speed, because it's all about the start. And the start is goes down to milliseconds, and that initial momentum they get off the start line is so, so important for how fast they gather up speed and how quickly they go down the track. So it's speed and, surprisingly, weight, because, you know, I'm, well, I'm not sure how good you were at physics back in the day, but... Um, weight and speed getting that momentum and it gets down the slope quicker so and seeing adam who's mentioned in his article about how he's used to do karate he's a he's a big lad so and um also very fast so perfect for bobsled and youngest ever bobsled to, uh, to represent gb at uh, the world cup so great to get him on and then also for the members articles uh, we had a couple of great submissions this week there's also one there's one from tom Dyrimple about the potential of uh, the dual format, which was, for those of you who may not have read the article, it is, it's when you basically play the t- international test format and international 2020 format side by side, but you have two different squads for both the test and um, T20, and they don't overlap. So which means you can have a full day of test cricket from 11 o'clock in the morning to 6 o'clock in the evening. And then you can have a T20 international from 6 in the evening till... Uh, about 10, 10.30 or so, and which will, I personally think it's a great way to be able to squeeze in more cricket into the obviously the shortened cricket, cricketing summer, which we're looking like we're going to have this uh, this summer. But um, do you think it's a potentially good idea, or do you think the overlap of players, even though maybe small, um, is actually quite unrealistic? I think for the overlap of the players, it could then focus on one side of the game, whether it be the test format or the T20 format. For example, Ben Stokes would, would get it be, be a shoo-in for both sides, I would say. How do you decide whether he plays the T20 or the test format? Surely, with these days, you want to prioritise the, the test and you know, prolong its life. 
or do you go for the kind of new more money some say more fun t20 format yeah, i agree and also if you're kind of if you're comparing them directly opposite each other in the same day i'm sorry but any any new fan i mean we both said how we love we love test cricket more than anyone but like if you're comparing them as a new cricket fan if you see test cricket cricket on for eight hours during the day and then you see a t20 internationals under the floodlights in the evening there's only one format you're going to choose, isn't there? So it's effectively, it, it could potentially downgrade test cricket in terms of popularity. But I think it's, a, it's an option. Good solution from Tom. I actually personally don't think it will work be, for those reasons. And also, I think you don't want to take away from the public are pay, paying for the tickets to see the best sportsmen in, the, in their country. You have to have the best sportsmen in that team. You can't take away from that by splitting it up just to get through the games. I think you'd have to cancel one or the other or find another day. But you have to have the strongest team for that game, in my view. I think it's, it's worth considering. Well, the conversation is worth having, especially amongst the players and seeing what their idea of it. But oh, how great would it be just to have cricket on from 11 in the morning till 11 at night and just seeing your test players and the T20 players all playing in one day? I mean, I wouldn't complain at all. Oh, it would be great. It would be one of the best things. Um, but yeah, thanks, Tom, for that article. Really, really interesting and um, certainly creates a bit of discussion between us and you know, a couple of the members as well. But yeah, please do keep sending us in further articles. Just send us a message on all our social media channels. And finally, uh, we would like to mention that thanks for the massive participation on our new Strava Club. You guys seem to have loved uh, racking up nearly 900 uh, kilometres worth of runs this week. So fingers crossed we reached to a thousand in the next week um, but yeah please all join and I uh, love the participation and um, any questions do just send them in to us and we'll get back to you as soon as possible but yeah thanks Nicole for this part uh, great to hear from her and thanks for listening guys Middle's going to hit the line. Well, this famous old centre court could be about to go crazy. Murray serves. Here it is. Here it is. Forehand from Murray. Backhand from Djokovic. Yes. Murray. Murray's the Wimbledon champion. 